2: dive in on gotta watch the tape from cleveland.com Douglay maurice ellis williams scott patsko we're breaking down the cleveland brown the five and two cleveland browns with numbers and film two big topics on this tuesday as usual ellis williams in the second half we'll delve into i gotta settle myself to think about this topic Are the Browns maybe somehow better off without Odell Beckham? Or how will they get by without him? I don't want to think about it, but we have to think about it because he's not playing the rest of the year. So it is a complicated topic, and Ellis already has a great breakdown on the site. We like to pair the writing and the talking. So Ellis on Tuesday morning, I already read it, loved it. Love the breakdown on the site. Go read it at cleveland.com slash Browns, and then we're going to talk it all out for half an hour in the second half here. But first, we're going to lead off with Scott Patsko. The other side of it, defending the pass. They're getting ready to play the the Las Vegas Raiders on Sunday. Um, Henry Ruggs, he's fast. He's young. He's a guy. Derek Carr, he's a guy that people wanted the Browns to draft like seven years ago, whenever the Johnny Manziel draft was. So Scott Patsko is going to break that down. How bad is the Browns' pass defense, and maybe is it not as bad as we think? So, Scott Pasco, you're at first. Dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape.
0: All right, so Joe Burrow passed for 406 yards on Sunday, and first time they played him passed for 300. We've seen other performances like this against the Browns, and before I go any further, I want to. can we say the Browns got Burrowed on Sunday? Like Ellis is coining nicknames over here. I feel like Joe Burrow's going to be around for a while, and if he throws for 400 yards on you, whether you won or not, I think he got burrowed and I've looked that up in the urban dictionary. It doesn't mean anything bad. Oh, can...
2: It's always, I like it when like middle-aged white guys go to the urban dictionary dictionary to make sure the funny dad joke they're making. Isn't something that yeah. young people out there are saying that means something that you can't believe it means that. So Scott, very smart move there. I like it. Got burrowed. And again, there's only, the Browns only have to worry about it for the next like 15
1: years. Yeah. So
2: are we going with got burrowed, Ellis? What do you think?
1: I don't know. All the 26-year-olds out there use burrowed for something else. So no,
0: for, kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, I think there's God. alcohol involved in what in, means to, to younger people. But
1: I'm, I'm kidding. I like it. Get burrowed. Got burrowed is going gonna, is gonna to live uh, through the AFC North for a while. I think, I think you're onto something, Scott.
0: There you go. All right. Well, we're coining it here. Okay. So as far as the Browns' pass defense goes, though, you know, you see a performance like this, and you think, well, how bad – is the Browns' pass defense because it's obviously it's been an issue that has come up week to week. Um, so I wanted to look into that and maybe more importantly, by the end of this, try to figure out what is the major reason behind this. So uh, I want to throw some uh, numbers at you here to kind of paint the picture of uh, just how bad the Browns have been this year. They're third in yards per game allowed at 288.1. Last season, they were 26. They were only allowing a little over 200 yards a game, 216. So that's a huge jump. Um, that's the most passing yards the Browns have given up, at least since they came back. I stopped looking uh, when I got to 99. Their previous high was 257 two years ago. And, you know, you go back a decade and the league leaders aren't even getting over 280. So this is really a, a huge jump <clears throat> for the Browns in, in yards per game. They're third in passing touchdowns allowed. They've given up 16. Um, PFF has them ranked 17th in coverage. They're 19th in DVOA. Uh, we mentioned Burroughs yards. Dak Prescott, of course, had the 500-yard game. Four of the seven quarterbacks, actually four of the seven games, quarterbacks have had a passer rating over 100 against the Browns, and Burrow had 90 uh, in week two in that 61-attempt game. Quarterbacks are completing 70, 67% of their passes against the Browns. The four players that have gotten the most starts for the Browns at safety in nickel corner, so you're looking at Joseph Sandejo, uh, Kevin Johnson, and Tavio Thomas, who might have forgotten about at this point, but was on the field a lot earlier this season. They've all gotten replacement level grades from PFF and coverage this season. You remember week one, Lamar Jackson, he was 20 of 25, three touchdowns and he looked like he was going to just kickstart another MVP season. He's completed 55% of his passes since that game. So the Browns certainly helped make him look really good uh, as a pass defense. So the Browns still have teams like the Raiders, the Texans and the Steelers and the Titans, On their schedule, they are all in the top 10 in uh, completion percentage this season. So this isn't done by any stretch. The Browns are going to face teams that have had success passing the ball. Um, The Titans – actually, the the Raiders and the Texans are in the top five in passing yards per game. So the secondary is going to have another tough task this Sunday against the Raiders. Uh, But I just want to kind of set the table and explain where the Browns are at going into this game.
2: It is a little – Hard for me to balance because I'm double checking some numbers as you Scott talk there, Scott, and I'm curious about this and I'm sure we'll, we'll, you'll get into this more. There's sort of like your past defense as a team, right? The overall numbers that you give up that you just went through. And then there's sort of how guys are performing individually, which is what we've talked about. And it does, would you, is there possibly Scott some disconnect at the moment where, the team numbers that you just ran through aren't great for the Browns, but there's some guys in there who are pretty good. And again, this continuing saga for us is how can maybe if you get different individuals in there or how do you pair some of the individual secondary players with the Browns with this overall team grade at past defensively?
0: Yeah. And I can, I can go over that too. And we will, we'll get into kind of units overall later, but uh, like Sandejo and Joseph, they have not been this bad in their career, especially in recent years, but they are uh, playing way below the level that got them contracts with the Browns. <clears throat> so that's two right there. And that's at the back of your defense. Tavier Thomas, as we've said, and I think we've talked about earlier in this podcast and the, just the whole slot issue with this team. This is the first time he'd been on the field in, 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 as a defensive player. And it wasn't good. Uh, I think he, he his grade 49.3 in coverage, he has not been seen the last few weeks because Kevin Johnson came back and they just decided to move Thomas to, uh, to special teams where he actually excels. But, like, guys like Terrence Mitchell who are in for Greedy Williams, Terrence Mitchell is grading at backup level, and that's basically what Terrence Mitchell has been the last few years. He's, he's consistent for what Terrence Mitchell is. He isn't consistent for the ceiling that we hoped Greedy, Greedy Williams might have. You know, Denzel Ward, as we talked about last week, is playing at about the level he's played at. Um, But then you have a linebacker group that doesn't really have anybody who excels in coverage. So you kind of put these things together and create a a team out of this and and you get some of the numbers that we have. And you have guys who come on late like Ronnie Harrison and Sheldrick Redwine, who's gotten limited playing time, but actually has done some good things on the field. But those guys aren't on and haven't been on the field enough to really make a dent in the direction this defense has gone.
2: So, Ellis, this is not the first time that we've gone over this with the Browns' pass defense. It's kind of a lingering thing here, and we want to keep reanalyzing things and looking at it in different ways. How would you describe, Ellis, like your general vibe of when you think about the Browns' pass defense? Do you think it's terrible? Do you think it's okay? Do you think it's inconsistent? Do you think it's bad, but it could get better? Like, how do do you in your head characterize it?
1: Yeah, I think we're operating, and Scott's kind of highlighting that, we're operating in a average serviceable don't get you know beat deep type of defense I think it's we're coming off just a, a great Denzel war game so I'm feeling a, a bit more positive about this you know if Denzel had one of those games where he does fine but he's not really heard from uh, you, you may have caught me with a different response here but that was impressive to see and I think it's important to keep in mind the individual talent as Scott said that the Browns have gone against. You know, this team has already faced the Bengals twice. And I understand they had the first overall pick last year, but that first overall pick got them Joe Burrow, which is how we started this podcast. And that team has weapons. You know, Joe Mixon wasn't even on the field, their Pro Bowl running back. And here's a rookie, T. Higgins, AJ Green looking like the AJ Green of Olden Ways, Tyler Boyd. John Ross wants to be traded. I don't even know if he was really even on the field. They've got weapons there. So you got that team twice. And then, uh, you know, a team like Dallas that, you know, there was a that was a big 12 football game just four weeks ago already. So when a team has talent like that, you suspect the numbers to in a way be inflated, where I find I think a, a safe way to judge this Brown secondary is, is a t- against a team like the Colts. You know, there, there was really not a whole lot of uh, concern there, and they controlled Phillip Rivers, they controlled those receivers, and they took care of business. When, when these offenses have, you know, three guys that can all be number ones, you're asking a lot of a secondary to keep those guys in front of them. And, and, and now that we have seven games to look at, I think the Browns have done a nice job considering the talent they've gone up against.
2: Scott, I do want to delve into this because you can see the future, as we have proven, you have proven with it's your – gift. Are you gonna are you gonna use it for good or use it for evil? Have you decided yet?
0: You know, last week I got into Terry Pluto's head to look at the future, and I do know what his next five books are going to be, and I'm willing to uh, sell those to a person for the right price.
2: Can I? Just so ask, yes, I'll use it
0: for evil if I'm getting paid enough.
2: Is one of the five books about the Browns winning the Super
0: Bowl or no? I don't see any money coming my way, so I can't say.
2: <laughs> okay, um, I hope it's not just like. The 10 best years of the modern Cleveland Browns, how they once won a wild card game. Like I, it's like, a, I hope they're the ceiling. There's is. an
0: autobiography on Kenny Britt in there. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> surprising. It's a surprising twist, but you know. So one of the things that we talked about on Gotta Watch the Tape last week was Denzel Ward.
2: And then Denzel Ward, you guys have all seen the highlight by now. I did not notice it in the moment. Some people did. He slid under a block. I literally have never in my life seen a football player do that. But Denzel, I mean, you, Denzel might have saved probably two touchdowns, maybe three by himself on Sunday. I just, Scott, since you delved into it, and we talked about Denzel last week, I just want to get you on that. How did you think Denzel played on Sunday?
0: I thought he looked like the kind of guy that we expected the number four overall pick to look like. Now, a lot of that came in that first drive. Um, he did have a big knockdown in the end zone later in the game against AJ green, but we're talking like the three plays that really stick out in your head, three of the plays all came in that first drive. And I think ideally you'd see him making plays in other quarters and in other drives, but um, that was kind of like a highlight reel all in one, you know, one series and it kept him out of the end zone. But I do, you know, one thing I, I wanted to mention though, the, the play that really gets lost on that opening drive that was all Denzel was Ronnie Harrison I think it was, he chased down Tyler board. It was Boyd. It was the play right before the interception where the Bengals kind of had everybody jumbled up and uh, Boyd was behind and kind of just went out in the flat and caught a swing pass from, from Burrow and was racing to the sideline and racing to the pylon. And Harrison basically went from the hash mark to the sideline and chased him down and saved the touchdown. I'm not sure any other safety on the Browns makes that play, but as far as word goes, I'd like to see maybe things spread out a little more. It kind of, Depends on how often they go at him and how often they target him. But um, after that first drive, it was – you didn't see a lot of Ward. But, again, that can be good. That can be bad.
2: Ellis, just same thing for you. What was your general Sunday evaluation of Denzel?
1: Yeah, really impressive performance. I mean, those two plays, of course, that stand out, the the deep shot to A.J. Green, to not even have a get a pass interference call or even a a questionable, like, oh, could that have been a flag? Could it not have been any sort of debate? I mean, that was – a a textbook defensive pass breakup Um, I saw that after that Bengals game Denzel now leads the league in pass breakups I believe with 11 he's tied with a few guys Um, but that's always an impressive number because like Scott said it means teams are trying him and to build off what we talked about on the Friday pod that was one thing I, I worried about with Denzel like at some point your reputation has to precede you you have to opposing teams need to have meetings about you and how we're not throwing your way. And I was unsure that teams were necessarily doing that, but those type of plays where you knock away a touchdown from probably a hall of fame receiver, are the type of plays that make coaches not throw your way anymore. They're going to throw to Terrence Mitchell's side and they're going to run the deep post at Terrence Mitchell now purposely, rather than being like, Oh, well, you know, we'll just, we'll throw right. Because we prefer it. We went over that on Friday and I thought that was a big moment for Denzel, one that will likely carry and build some momentum for him. And, of course, you guys already said it, the slide, the slide uh, breakdown to stop that screen. Uh, watching the All-22 on that, they had, they had the numbers that probably should have gone up for a big play. Um, but Denzel used his, his leverage, his size, his advantage. It's kind of like a shorter offensive lineman being able to get in there and get under guys. He literally got as low as you can get uh, and, and took out the play. So two just real impressive moments for Denzel that was uh bookended by just an overall nice game. Cause like you said, then you kind of stopped hearing from them and that's because they tried them last.
2: All right. So Scott, part, part of the issue here, and this is happening in college football a lot too. It's like Ohio state just started and you're trying to figure out how good is Ohio state's defense. But then you look and it's like, well, Alabama's given up 50 to people. It's like, you have to look at things in context. So where is the league right now in terms of how NFL teams are defending the pass?
0: All right, so this is why I wanted to bring all this up. And it's that before we say this is one of or, or the worst Browns pass defense, you know, and we look at the numbers stat wise, we got to take note of what's going on around the league. Teams are scoring at a historic rate this season. They're averaging 25 and a half points per game, which is an all time high for a single season. It's up like over two and a half points from last season. Through four weeks, the average combined score in an NFL game was 51.3 points, uh, which is an increase of 16% over last year through seven weeks it's still high it's still a 51.6 that doesn't count uh the monday night game uh this week so teams are averaging over 50 points a game in 2020 teams are averaging an nfl high 246.1 passing yards per game which again is uh, is an all-time high 1.8 passing TDs per game all-time high so 2020 is just there's a lot of scoring happening the first uh 2020's first in completions per game, fourth in attempts, 65.7 completion percentage. Uh, again, a high. Seven teams are giving up at least 270 passing yards per game and two are over 300 yards per game, 300 yards per game passing. And that's from 1999 to 2011, you had just one team give up over 270 yards passing per game. So everything has really shifted in recent years. 538.com did a kind of an examination of why this is, why scoring is up. And they looked at things like, uh, the decline in holding penalties, offensive holding penalties, which uh, I think people noticed after that first week. Increased pace of play, which is something we've even seen from the Browns. More teams going forward on fourth down uh, and being successful. That has been a big jump this season. A lot of pre step motion and more play action. Browns obviously have increased in play action. So all these things together kind of can be factors in, in seeing teams score more. I mean, the Browns have benefited from this on offense they're scoring over 30 points a game and all their wins this season so um, even though it's not the passing performances from Baker Mayfield this season that we're talking about you know before this past week um, they are scoring a lot so all this passing is putting defenses in a tough spot typically on pro football focus if you look at coverage grade by team you're going to see 10 to 15 teams kind of in the 80s or above and it's and with half of them in the 90s. And it's been that way for like the past decade. This year, the Buccaneers lead in coverage grade was 74.4. So nobody is in the 80s or 90s at this point in the season. There are 20 teams, at 60 or below. And um, if you're talking about individual players, like we've said before, that's usually the cutoff for backup level uh, performance. Six of those 20 teams that have a grade below 60, that includes the Browns, six of them have winning records. You have teams that are struggling in pass coverage, but you do have some teams in there that are winning. The Browns, like I said earlier, are 17th in grade, 55.5. 5. I mean, that's super low for the 17th spot. They're 19th in DVOA. They are 10 spots below the league average at 19th. So there are a lot of teams playing subpar pass defense this season. And I think a lot of that points back to what teams are able to do on offense.
2: So I guess the question is then, how much can a team win with subpar pass defense in a league where lots of teams have subpar pass defense. So like Ellis, as you, again, Scott is explaining all of this. When you take all this in, are you thinking to yourself, this will be the Browns undoing, or are you thinking to yourself, you know what, it's not great, but all they have all these ways to make up for it, and this is not a do or die if they don't improve. It's going to kill their season kind of thing.
1: Yeah, I think they're they're making do with what they have and playing a very specific brand of defense, which is generating turnovers. They're they're gonna live off turning the ball over. They're gonna let their best player get after the quarterback and wreak havoc. And Miles Garrett has been able to do that. He has got to be the favorite for defensive player of the year right now. And that in in a way takes care of your back end because you're eliminating entire drives you're turning the ball over and thus protecting from what really is turning into points every time the team gets the ball you know teams don't really punt against the Browns they're either scoring or getting turned over and I think I really like how Scott laid all that out there because what it tells me is there's really just an erosion of the middle class uh, when it comes to the secondary the NFL right no politics. No politics on this podcast, Ellis. We
2: know it's a very contentious time. The election is a week away. Oh, I'm sorry. You, you said yeah. NFL
1: middle class. Yeah, yeah. You know, elections week away. I thought we, I just would bake that in there, you know, get out and vote everybody. That's, that's, <laughs> I mean, just very quickly, if we just want to stop and talk about economic policy for 10 or 12 minutes. Yeah, go ahead. I'll tell you what the film says about economic policy. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but that, that, is, that, that to me is what uh, I think Scott was laying out there that you're going to have these elite defenses still in the NFL, but right now with how fast the offenses are ahead of the defenses right now, it's just the name of the game. And Browns fans saw it last week. The last team with the ball is probably going to win. And I just think that's the state of the NFL right now. That's a good way to look at it. And so I do think, again, context, context,
2: context. We're, we're doing numbers, we're doing film, but one of the best things about numbers is it doesn't just tell you about what's happening. It tells you how it fits. So Scott, you told us how the Browns fit into the modern NFL, but a reference point for a lot of people is their own team. So how are the, how did the Browns fit into sort of the history of the Browns and defending the pass?
0: Um, well, like I said, this is the worst. Well, I guess this is the largest uh, number for yards per game, passing yards per game. As far as I, I went back to 99 after that, uh, unfortunately I could get a, uh, uh, breakdown of the entire history for the browns, but since ninety nine it is the highest, and the second highest was two hundred fifty seven so when you get back to about two thousand and eleven, you stop seeing teams uh, getting over two hundred and seventy yards per game, you usually see three or one really in the past six or seven years, but that ninety nine to two thousand and eleven stretch, you had one team that had over two hundred and seventy passing yards per game, so again, this is the whole league kind of shifting to uh, to more of a a passing focus and more of a really an offensive the offense is having the edge. But as far as the Browns go, you're you're looking at a defense that's struggling the most to stop the pass probably ever. So whose fault is it? That's the real question here. Um, Uh, Where does does this fall in the issues?
2: Film, numbers, context, and blame.
0: We're big on blame here at Gotta Watch the Tape. Who gets the blame? So we have... A handful of contenders, right? We've talked about the safety issues, the cornerbacks, which I think include uh, your nickel corners like Thomas and and Johnson, who have kind of split time this season. You have the linebackers who we've talked about on this podcast as having issues in coverage and in space. You have Joe Woods who's spent 98% of his career coaching defensive backs and now has a defensive backfield is just trying to tread water. And then we haven't mentioned injuries. And I know we've uh, discussed amongst ourselves sometimes like where Grant Delpit fits into all this. Here's a guy who was drafted who a strength in his game is coverage. And he was a guy who we expected prior to the season to be on the field a lot, probably with two other safeties. And, you know, having the versatility to cover different kinds of players. You're missing Greedy Williams. You know, Kevin Johnson, like we said, was out for a few games. So you have injuries involved in this. And then you have what we said earlier, the NFL trends of just this being a historic year for passing offenses and a really bad year for passing defenses. I mean, I look at all this and to me it looks like just the perfect storm for for the struggles the Browns are having. You know, you have guys who they counted on that are performing below the levels that they've seen before. You have the injuries and you have NFL passing offenses. You got Joe Burrow coming in and looking great in these two games. You got Dak Prescott, making the Cowboys the the best passing offense through much of the first half of the season. It's just this kind of put them all together and and you have what we found with the Browns. I, I would still put safeties and injuries near the top of the list and maybe, maybe the passing offenses this season behind that. That's kind of how i might rank them.
2: And I think it's one of those things. And I think Ellis has said this a lot of times, the Browns have a a foot in the present and the future. And we want to have a foot in the present and the future here. I got to watch the tape. And there are things here that you can see why this will get better next year, right? When Delpit's healthy. And then now they have a handle on things. It's not like they, they don't need five new guys in the secondary, right? But they have a couple guys who are answers. They're, they've figured a couple things out. They're going to get a, a really important guy back from injury. And then, you know, you can see, it's not like this is going to drag them down for years ahead, especially talking about Denzel. If you have a centerpiece guy that you can sort of build around back there, the one thing, and I, I don't think we had this specifically to talk about, but this continues to be out there. Would anybody make a deal to help pass coverage? Would you say that the Browns should consider making a trade to help pass coverage? I was just looking up again Anthony Harris from Minnesota. He's a free agent right after this year, is that so? This it would be like a half year kind of thing, unless you're going to try to trade for him and then give him an extension right away or whatever. Ellis, would you ponder it? The, the, everything that Scott has explained, would you ponder a trade for a secondary, a, an impact guy in the secondary?
1: It, it's it's tough to to land on a spot with this one, just because it, it we don't know enough about this front office yet, the where they and how they want to allocate their money. Because the problem with Anthony Harris is he's franchise tag right now, meaning he wants a new contract. You know, he's he's not going to, want to play another year on the on the franchise tag these players want long-term security guaranteed money in those first one or two years and I don't know if the Browns want to do that I don't know if they see value in tying up 12 13 14 million for a safety that needs to come in learn the system and then you're really making him a focal point of your defense like you just mentioned Denzel Ward now you're you're talking about a defense of Miles Garrett Denzel Ward and Anthony Harris I, I don't know if that's where they want to head when they can just build through the draft get a grant delpit back draft another safety next year and build organically that way Um, there's stuff going on with the cap right now that teams just are unsure about because of COVID that number is probably coming down so I don't know if for a team that probably knows they're not winning the Super Bowl this year should they be buyers at the deadline at a position that they're you know Ronnie Harrison's playing well, you know, and they aren't billed to win in the secondary anyway. So why invest in it? I would, I would lean no. So one of the things that matters for this Sunday is Scott,
2: you mentioned some of the grades for the Browns. The Browns are, as you said, 17th in the PFF coverage grade. And the Browns are 15th in PFF pass rush grade. You know who stinks? The Raiders. The Raiders Hmm. are 31st. In coverage grade by PFF, and they're 28th in pass rush grade by PFF. And I just looking at individual coverage grades for everybody who's going to play in this game, Raiders and Browns, the three highest rated secondary guys by coverage grade are Ronnie Harrison, Denzel Ward, and Terrence Mitchell. The Raiders don't have a guy ranked higher than 94th individually. So, whatever we, th- and listen, the Raiders have played Tom Brady. The Raiders have, but they've also played like Teddy Bridgewater, Cam Newton. They played Josh Allen. Josh Allen looks good against some teams and looks a little nuts against some other teams. They haven't been playing Russell Wilson every week. They haven't been, they did play Patrick Mahomes. They beat Patrick Mahomes, but you know, they haven't, it's not been a constant string of all pro quarterbacks that they have faced and they've been terrible. So that, I mean, again, context, Scott, that's what you're talking about. The Browns yes have issues, but man, and and the Raiders are right here in the mix with the wild card race with the Browns. This is a huge wild card game this weekend, and the Raiders are in worse shape than Cleveland is in trying to stop the pass.
0: Oh yeah, the Raiders remind me of the Cowboys with an offense that isn't as as good. The Browns are faced, I mean, the Bengals obviously have issues in the secondary and on defense as a whole. So, yeah, I mean, overall, this league is not having a great defensive year and the Browns you know, before the season, we knew they had a schedule that was beneficial to them. And it's kind of playing out that way. We've, that's why we were talking about how they have such a chance to win these next this five-game stretch, you know, uh, before they get to the Titans. And defenses like the Raiders are a big part of that. It, you know, they've had those two wins that they beat the Saints and the, uh, who was the other team? The Saints and the Chiefs. I mean, those really stick out. But this is a team that you look at those defensive numbers and you think, man, how can you not score 30 points on them?
2: So, and one of the things before we get out of this topic, Scott, I just want to double back on a guy that you have mentioned. Um, Again, this is not everything, but like the individual PFF coverage grades, the highest rated guy for the Browns is Ronnie Harrison among guys in the secondary. He's 16th in the league. You pointed out the play that Ronnie Harrison made on Sunday. It it feels like he is helping right in the end. He's helping Scott. He's getting them. He's lifting their play a little bit from where they were start of the year.
0: Yeah. The last two weeks uh, for sure. Um, Actually the last, I think three weeks. Uh, It's been a big increase. And even as Kevin Stefanski talks about all the great things that Carl Joseph has done this year, you look at Ronnie Harrison, you think, why would you want Ronnie Harrison uh, not on the field over Carl Joseph? I think Joseph got like 12 snaps on Sunday and, and, you know, kind of played at his usual low level. So the problem is you need two safeties back there and Ronnie Harrison is only one of them. I think Kevin Johnson, getting more time is is going to to help the the offense or the defense improve too. Um, I mean, Tavier Thomas really set the bar low for nickel corner, but yeah, I think, you know, we talked about Denzel Ward earlier and and you keep him, if he uses this as kind of a springboard to, to kind of keep that high level play up, you get enough from Terrence Mitchell. I think Ronnie Harrison stepping in at safety kind of helps everybody play a little better. My only concern is, like I said, you have, another safety spot and they haven't had anybody to fill that and perform at a high level
2: at some point does can well at some point is Zendaya off the field or is that just not with the skill sets involved I mean could you play could you play Harrison and Joseph as your two safeties or Ellis is that would that not really work are they just get Zendaya is just part of this
1: I I think Zendaya is a part of this and I, I think it goes back to the the organization skills he brings to the defense uh he he helps them get lined up he makes calls for them he gets that secondary in order there's clearly a trust of an extension of coach from Stefanski to Joe Woods and then to the extension of Sandejo on the field so for the mistakes he makes I think the coaching staff trusts and needs him out there
2: do you agree that's got 481 snaps for him so far this season that's a lot of snaps
0: yeah, I think they have pretty much wed themselves to Sandejo and, you know, B.J. Goodson, guys who we look at every week and, and we see them, you know, the Goodson's already kind of blasted through his uh, his personal record for coverage snaps and, and Sandejo, um I'm just bringing up the, the total number here, missed tackles, I believe he leads the team. Yeah, he's got, well, he's got seven missed tackles. That's the, the team high. I mean, every week we see Sandejo blowing into a kind of flying to the ball and kind of diving past the, the play and missing the tackle. It's just something that we've seen over and over. You need veterans. You need guys who know what you want to do out there. And I get that, but it's clear that Sunday, is a guy who they're kind of winning in spite of.
2: All right. So we are going to flip it to the other side of the ball. We'll be right back on got to watch the tape. We appreciate everybody listening. Thanks to Scott for that breakdown on the Brown, on the Brown's uh, pass defense. And now we're going to deal with the Brown's passing offense. And what's next for them with Ellis Williams on Gotta Watch the Tape. All right, we're back. Ellis, about that time. Dive in.
1: Yeah, well, first, you know, this is a topic that isn't going to be fun to discuss. You know, anytime you see a player go down for a, a long period of time, especially in ACL, Achilles, things like that, it's it's disappointing. And especially when that player is as electric as Odell Beckham Jr. What I want to unpack in this deep dive is the question or the notion of are the Browns and Baker Mayfield better without Odell Beckham jr. You turn on ESPN, if they're talking Browns, it's this exact topic. I'm sure Brown fans have been having debates or agreements with their, their friends and family about this type of stuff. Browns Twitter is talking about it, of course. And I think before we get into this, it's important to separate both those questions. Take are the Browns better without Odell Beckham jr. On one half and have is Baker Mayfield better without Odell Beckham Jr. on the other half? I think both can be true, but of course are extremely correlated. The Browns' offense ceiling is likely lower without an explosive athlete like Odell Beckham Jr. I don't think there will be much pushback there. And Baker can play better without Odell, but those explosive plays, those bailout circus catches, those disappear. So I'll give you some numbers here and then – we're throwing the numbers out the window because what I enjoy about this show and about just evaluating football in general is sometimes the numbers tell the whole story. Sometimes numbers tell some of the story and you need film to back it up. And sometimes the eye test is all you can use. And this is one of those topics. It's the eye test is your greatest currency when evaluating what Odell Beckham jr brings to the Browns and what they'll miss in his absence. So first some stats, Here's Baker Mayfield's completion percentage with Odell Beckham Jr., 60%. Yards per attempt, 7.1. Total QBR, 60.9. And then without, 63% completion, and his yards per average goes up to 7.6. And that total QBR goes up quite a bit, like two or three points. So I thought that was an interesting first place to start with. You know, he completes a little bit more of his passes. His yards per attempt go up. And his total QBR is better. Before we get into the eye test part of this, I want to throw it to you guys. Just where do you land on this? I mean, everyone's got got a view on where this Browns offense is with or without Oda Beckham Jr. We'll get into some Rashard Higgins stuff later. But where do you land on this? Is this offense in trouble? Or is what we saw in that fourth quarter of the Browns offense sustainable, in your opinion?
0: You know, we talked about this after the game. Uh, whether or not I think one of our uh, football insiders brought up Baker looked so much better once Odell left the field and is he really better and I've thought about that maybe not so much from a schematic standpoint and what Odell does but just from getting inside Baker's head and how we've seen the Browns multiple times look like they got to a point where they had to get Odell involved we saw it in week one I think it was at the end of the second quarter he hadn't had a target yet That's the type of thing that you end up tracking then, you know, is Odell had a catch yet? Has he had a target yet? And you think about Baker's head and, you know, trying to make sure that Jarvis and Odell are both getting targets and you take one guy out of that equation and then you're just, you know, that doesn't matter anymore. And you have a clear number one guy. I don't know if that's really how he thinks, but I have run that through my head wondering if that has been an issue in why Baker has never really seemed to be on the same page with Odell.
2: It's hard for me to believe that having a good player makes you worse. So there's a part of me that I just, I don't want to go down that road because it doesn't make sense to me. The thing that I think does make sense is roster building, roster management. You take Odell's money and you spend it somewhere else. And so that's one of those things. It's like, okay, well, for what this team wants to be and how they want to play, instead of spending $14 million on Odell, what if you spent that $14 million on an all-pro safety? Or what if you spent that $14 million on an all-pro linebacker? Or what if you spent that $14 million on an edge rusher who's better than Olivier? You know what I mean? Like, that kind of thing, I think, is interesting. Just like, because right now, you're not getting anything instead. You're just taking him away. So the idea of, like, just removing that, it's a big chunk of your cap. It is a guy who I think, certainly, and I'm sure, Ellis, you know this, you've analyzed this much more than I have. He changes a little bit, at least how a defense has to play you. And just his presence on the field has an impact, even when he's not getting the ball. So like, I can't get past that. So I'm, I'm open to the discussion here, but I feel like it's going to be hard for me to budge off of. They're better without him or Baker's better without him, because I still would believe down the road. Yes. You said like the upside's still better that I still think they would have gotten to a point where it clearly would have been like, man, Look at this now. Now we got it. Look at Odell with the offense and everybody. And it's smooth. I felt like it was still out there. But I think the thing almost everybody in the off, on the, listening to this podcast would agree with is it doesn't feel like the end of the world that they're missing it, Because he, what his production has been, they can make up. I don't think they can make up for who Odell Beckham Jr. is. I think they can make up for what... Odell Beckham Jr. has been in this offense in like that kind of distinction. So, but it just, as I said on the post-game podcast, and I said it again on the Tuesday podcast with Mary Kay and Dan, and I tried to write about it and I was too sad. And Terry wrote about it for Tuesday and Alice, you wrote about it for Tuesday. I don't know if it's worth me writing a column that's like, I feel sad. (laughs) Is that analysis about Odell Beckham? I feel sad for him. I feel sad for Browns fans. So I don't know. I'm just going to sit here and be sad and you be smart, Ellis. Oh, that that could be like, we're like the dwarves. I'm, go. I'm sad. You're smart. And Scott, you're also smart. Maybe Ellis, I, we got to figure out what, how we want to divide up the smart part for the dwarf names. Maybe we can have, have the, uh, the listeners decide
1: that, but anyway, smart dwarf, go ahead. We'll, we'll all have t-shirts next time with our, our title. <laughs> Yeah, you know, this is a podcast; no one could see that. All right, but Doug, you 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 said something there that I want to unpack. It's about how defenses played Odell Beckham Jr. and the opportunities he created for his teammates. So, w- listeners for this, and and Doug teased at the top, shameless plug for what I wrote for the website uh, this morning. I, I almost recommend you walk through the story as as this podcast uh, continues because we're gonna to get a full understanding of this, you need the visual. You do need the tape. Um, I, I put a, a video of the Browns' first explosive play versus the Steelers. Um, it didn't come until four minutes remaining in the second quarter. They're already down 24-0. And Austin Hooper grabbed like a you know, 36-yard play down the left sideline. He was wide open. There wasn't a player within 10 yards of Austin Hooper. And you want to know the only way that happens in professional football? It's either blown coverage – which defenses like the Steelers, that doesn't happen to Or you have a talent so worrisome for defensive coordinators that they take two or three defenders and vacate an area that should be covered, but now isn't because Odell Beckham has cleared it. And thus your lesser talented player comes in and takes advantage of all that green grass. This snap came in a heavy formation, three tight ends, Odell Beckham Jr. The only receiver on the field, and of course, and Kevin's fans is kind of becoming known for this. At least I'm, I'm really picking it up when he has three tight ends on the field. He he's gonna throw. <laughs> it's like he, he he's like he brings his heavy personnel into the run, and he just throws the football, and it's working. But it's because of Odell Beckham Jr. on this play. Odell is flanked out wide uh, at the snap. He gets vertical. There is not a faster stride for stride player on this team than Odell Beckham Jr he then breaks for the post at about 18 yards depth and he takes both the corner that was man on him under and the high safety with him completely vacating the middle of the field for Austin Hooper. He did the same exact thing in week 2 and he's done it for a handful of touchdowns this year. It is the attention that Odell Beckham Jr brings when he's not getting the ball that I'm really concerned the Browns won't be able to replace. We saw at the end of the Bengals game, the Bengals still respecting vertical shots without Beckham being on the field. I'm worried teams now are just going to dare like they did at the end of the the game winner throws like that. They're just going to dare Baker Mayfield to throw these balls in single coverage to Cordero Hodge or Donovan's people Jones. I don't think Higgins is going to be the stretch the field guy. He is, Great in spots, and we'll talk about Higgins a little bit after this, but it's going to be either Hodge or Peoples-Jones. And to me, that just doesn't sound like serviceable threats that then will have the middle of the field and the underneath stuff open. They know that's where the Browns want to go. But the first rule of a defense, it's real simple. You guys ready for this? Don't get beat deep. That's the point. If you are getting beat over the top, there's no point of playing the dang football game. You can't get beat vertical, and Odell Beckham Jr. is one of the you know five guys in this league that put fear into defensive coordinators at night. That he's going vertical, and the Browns just lost that guy. How do you replace it, Scott? Do they? I mean, do do, do you see?
2: And I think People's Jones is is very interesting here. I'm not at the moment super optimistic about that. I, I think maybe I was a little too harsh on him immediately after the game, but I don't you're
1: nasty dog. You were you. <laughs> You always have it out for one person after that in that post game pod. Sometimes it's me, sometimes it's Jonathan People Jones. It's just it's just how you are after a game, isn't it? Is it? Did you call up DPJ and commiserate?
0: It's like it's okay, man. Listen, Doug went after me too. He, yes, got, he Michigan guys here in Cleveland, man. They just they get nothing from us.
2: I I loved the pick at the time, and then I said after the game, after he caught the amazing game winning touchdown catch, I said he caught it by accident, which is just it's mean. So. <laughs> How do you see it, Scott? Like, do you see? Because I do think that the thing it's circular thinking, which I trap myself with this. But part of me is half thinking, okay, Odell was such a deep threat that teams accounted for it. So then Baker couldn't throw it because they were playing it. And now if they're not afraid of it and they're not as worried about covering it, maybe Baker can throw it more because the guy he's throwing it to is worse, which means they're not covering it as much, which means he might have more one-on-one matchups, which might actually increase the chances of doing it. So, that sounds crazy, but Scott, just what Ellis said, like, and and again, the individuals. Hodge, I know you, I think you've liked Hodge, Scott. DPJ, can they? In some, like, to what degree? Oh, here's how I look
0: at this. And I look at the same way I looked at losing Nick Chubb. If your offense can't run the ball with Kareem Hunt in the backfield, then that's your, your offense has big problems. Your offense can't succeed with, with Jarvis Landry uh, as your number one target. You know, if you need Odell and Jarvis Landry on your, in your pass game to succeed, well, then your offense probably has issues. I don't, I think Ellis is right. Beckham did a lot of things that don't show up in the, in the, in the stat sheet and, you know, he doesn't have to catch the ball to have an impact, but Again, I don't think you need to have two-star wideouts. You shouldn't have to need two-star wideouts to have a successful offense. Kevin Stefanski mm-hmm. talked recently about um, you know, having to ev- evolve as an offense, and this is you know an opportunity to do that. I don't necessarily know what that's going to look like. Maybe it's still the same things they've, kept, they've done all along. Maybe they have to adjust because they know that they don't have somebody opposite Landry who's going to demand those kind of double teams. But again, you still have like, if, if I said like before the season, if you told me pick two spots on this team where the Browns could lose players and still be successful, I would have picked running back and wide receiver. And, and that's what's happened so far. I mean, White teller sitting out to me is a bigger deal than losing Nick Chubb uh, over the past few weeks. So I think Kevin Stefanski will, will figure this out. I don't know if that means could Hodge becomes, you know, some new version of himself. Uh, I do think, uh, the fact that Higgins played so well means we could see more of him going forward. But again, we've seen Higgins kind of disappeared the last season and a half. So they still got Jarvis Landry, I guess is my point. And I think that you should have be able to have a successful pass game. If you have a guy like that out there.
2: And just by the numbers, Odell this year, 43 targets. And again, that's with missing basically the whole game last week, but he leads the Browns with 43 targets that is tied for 26th in the NFL and then Jarvis Landry, 38 targets. That's 47th in the NFL. Listen, I mean, again, if, if Odell was more productive, people would be more freaked out about this. So it is hard, Ellis. I mean, I, I think it. this is difficult. It's difficult sort of like from what he was, what he is. I, it, I, I'm glad you're doing it, not me. Because I, I think it, it, it's kind of hard to talk about to really get down to the nut of it.
1: Yeah, it's going to be hard to quantify all year. Um, I think this is gonna come down to a few different things and I think this is a good time to talk about Rashard Higgins because now we're talking replacement level talent how do you make up for what Odell Beckham Jr. brought you mentioned the targets and we've been talking about what he does that doesn't show up in the box score getting people open allowing Baker Mayfield to get to his first read that was another big subsection my story Um, I think Sam Monson of um, PFF had it the Bengals only took Baker Mayfield off his first read twice that entire game Uh, You saw what the Steelers did when in terms of taking away Baker Mayfield's first read, they did it successfully. And then even when, and it's exactly what Scott talked about on the last guy watched the tape, or maybe two ago, a week ago, um, Baker Mayfield creating pressure himself. That's an exact byproduct of teams. Good defense is taking away his first read. Odell Beckham jr. Is the ultimate open your first read up player. And it goes, these two subsections are related as, as most are. When you have – when teams have to respect Beckham because, again, the goal of a defense is don't get beat over the top or you're coming off the field, that tends to open up your first reads when a schemer like Kevin Safansky has them being across the middle of the field, some numbers, throws, and, 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 and into the flats. Beckham is your ultimate, I'm going to open your first read up player, and they don't have that anymore. So when we're talking replacement level, let's just start with Rashard Higgins. I, I saw an interesting graphic on ESPN. I'm gonna I'm gonna read it to you guys now, just comparing by target OBJ and Higgins. OBJ with Baker Mayfield per target, yards per attempt, 7.6, the touchdown to interception ratio, six touchdowns when targeting Beckham, eight interceptions, and a passer rating of just 72.4. Higgins, yards per attempt, 10.9. That's an impressive number. And I think Baker for the game on Sunday was 10.6. I mean, anytime these quarterbacks can get to seven, six, seven, eight, 6, it's, it's a pretty impressive feat. Double digits is uh, as good as it gets. Uh, seven touchdowns when targeting Higgins, three interceptions, and a passer rating of 125. So I, I think it's, there's no reason to question uh, the connection these two have, but the, where the questions do come in is the sustainability. This was Richard Higgins' first 100-yard receiving game of his career. Yeah. And this is, this is a guy who's been in the league since, since what, 2017, I believe, you know, and of course last year, dog house stuff, whatever, but Doug, what makes this hard to quantify like how you started this pass back to me is what you can't predict our player progression jumps. We couldn't predict Wyatt Teller all of a sudden becoming one of the better guards in professional football. We don't know what Richard Higgins did this summer if this is going to be finally the opportunity that Baker Mayfield and Rashard Higgins have been waiting three years to have, to be a a number one receiver and to have a connection and have Higgins play 88% of the snaps, then we might, we have to revisit this conversation. There might be a level up here brewing, but the data, funny how I told you guys that this is going to be all about the eye test. And now I'm landing on the data. The data tells you that this is not who Rashard Higgins is the, the, the five catch 110 yard, playmaker can he be he's got a lot of skill sets that as a receiver you enjoy seeing because they're game making plays you know he's not a combine guy but he shows up on the field he is one of the best catchers of football that catch is is not getting enough respect as a catch of the year candidate that set up the donovan people's jones score He has, and he is deceivingly fast. I think teams don't respect that vertical speed. And then all of a sudden he can accelerate a little quickly. He's not going to burn past you, but he gets that step that allows him to then separate and use his frame to get the football. If this is a level up, then this is a different conversation, but what Higgins can't do is he can't take that reverse in Dallas and go 50 yards and win the game for you. He can't throw a pass to a tight end uh, on a r- fake reverse because think of this too. And there's another subsection I had the Browns essentially had three quarterbacks on the field and Kevin Stefanski unlo- was starting to unlock that. We've seen Odell Jarvis Landry and Baker Mayfield all throw passes for this team and all really good passes. It's not like gimmicky flea flicker stuff. Those type of gotta have it plays that Stefanski leans on at the end of contest to get either into field goal position or game winning touchdown situations. They just lost a guy that can both grab reverses, throw passes, and beat you deep. Higgins isn't doing that.
2: Scott, that I th- I, the the level up idea from Higgins is so fascinating, and and you've detailed it a lot with Teller, the level up that he he did this year, as Ellis said. What do you think the chances are, Scott? Like, do you think because and at what point? I mean, this Rashard Higgins is pretty far into his career here. He's not like a, a second year guy. At what point is a guy, he is who he is, or at what point can you still make a leap, even though you've kind of been treading water for several years in the league?
0: A lot of it depends on the the scheme and what positions he's put in in the offense. Higgins, to me, seems like a guy who, who, if he was a number two guy, he would look really good. And then, you know, he gets that contract, goes somewhere as a number one guy, and people find out he's not that guy. But for him to come this season and make that leap would not be much of a surprise, because remember, it was just a year or two ago that, he was put on the practice squad and kind of worked his way back up and, and had success with Baker and then you know this season kind of had to tread by himself out there in free agency and then come crawling back in a way uh, to the Browns so uh, it's kind of on brand with him to kind of work his way back up and have success and if this is a repeat of that it, it wouldn't be that shocking uh, to me Ellis you mentioned that that play that uh, that Odell had against Dallas who does that now that's a great question that's one of the things that. That I thought about too, like who, you know, JoJo Natson got some of those looks, but you're you're not giving him the ball in that position. I don't think it's it's just Odell. So Higgins can't do that. The rest of the guys on this in this wide receiver group can't really do that. Except maybe Taywan Taylor, who's on the practice squad. Certainly don't have any other guys who know how to throw the ball like him. You got you got Johnny Stanton, uh, former uh, dual threat uh, high school phenom on the practice squad. Maybe you bring him up, but. You, know, you still do have Jarvis Landry, and I think we can't overlook that. But I it wouldn't not be a surprise for me to see Higgins make that jump. I just don't we just can't say right now whether or not he's even gonna get that chance with Kadero Hodge coming back from IR. Exactly.
1: This team loves Kadero Hodge. Scott, I think it's a great point. Like is Higgins just in this this rut in this cycle of proving himself, but not then getting probably the opportunities he's earned? And that comes down to Stefanski not probably not wanting to handcuff himself with a specific type of receiver. Defenses know if they jet Higgins across the formation, he's not getting that reverse. It, it, it completely eliminates your advantage of motion. And I think there's something about Higgins' skill set that Stefanski just doesn't quite. I don't want to say know how to use, but he's just not. He's not your Landry, Beckham, Hodge type complete package but he does a lot of things down the field that we haven't seen Landry yet do this year with Baker really. And that definitely Cordero Hodge hasn't done yet.
2: So let me put you guys on the spot and then we want to get to sort of what this means for Baker, I think Ellis, but the, as you said at the top, okay. If we're all assuming, I mean, I think everybody listening to this, we all would agree which receiver will be the most targeted Brown the rest of the year. It's obviously Jarvis Landry. Who's next? The rest of the season from this point on, who will be second in targets among the receivers? So no Austin Hooper, no Harrison Bryant, no Kareem Hunt. And who will be third? So really, it's a Higgins, Hodge, Peoples-Jones question.
1: Ellis, we'll start with you. Man, Doug, that's a tough question. One of those hard-hitting ones I woke up this morning didn't think I'd have to answer. You know, I was hoping to keep it a little lighter today. The Browns aren't meeting with media, and now you're hit, hitting me with stuff like this, Doug. That's what I do, man. That's how I roll. Man. <laughs> All right. Well, I just argued out of this point, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it's Higgins. And that I don't feel good about it because I don't know how this coaching staff feels about him. I mean, Kevin fancy came out and said that there's an undeniable connection there. But that doesn't mean coaches are going to trust you in every situation. So I I just think due to the lack of options, it it needs to be Higgins. And Higgins has earned time on the field. I I, I think his own teammates would start maybe wondering if he's not getting time. Look, practice is a whole other monster. There could be things going on at practice that we're unaware of. um, And all of a sudden, you're just a game time player. I think it's going to be Higgins second and then third, I think I think I think we got to really watch Cordero Hodge. I, this team has really has been high on him as a guy that we didn't even know if he would make the team or practice squad guy, and all of a sudden he's out there as the number three receiver. Uh, it, it'll be fun to see what he actually is. Um, I'm sure he's healthy now, and that's something that you can't say about Jarvis Landry. It's Something you can't say about a lot of players in this league right now, but being on IR that early is going to get Hodge at hundred percent, which I, I think is a, a sneaky and interesting act, X factor to watch in this group.
2: So Ellis says Higgins two, Hodge three, Scott, do you agree with that or disagree with that?
0: I'm going to agree with that. And I'm basing a lot of that on just the, how big a role Higgins played in the win on Sunday. Um, and Hodge had six targets through his, the three games that he played. I think he's on the field a lot because of his blocking, especially his run blocking. He even tweeted out, Um, And I found it while Ellis was talking uh, and this was uh, after the second game. I believe if blocking is what I have to do to help us win, then that's what it'll be. And I think he understands what his role on this team is that he's not going to see a lot of targets. So I don't see that. I don't see them taking Cuddle Hodge out of that role and trying to make him something that he probably isn't. Uh, I think maybe Higgins gets that shot. And let's remember this is a team that is going to have that so far this season has had three wide receivers on the field. Only two teams have had three few receivers on the field fewer times than the Browns. They're like 46 percent, 11 personnel. Uh, they've had two or fewer on the field 60 percent of the time. So they're not going to have three out there a lot. So it's really going to be Jarvis Landry and somebody else. And, you know, we, we talked a lot in the offseason about that third receiver, and it just really isn't a spot outside of depth that is going to have a huge impact on this team. So I think if you have to pick between Hodge and Higgins for that one spot, I'm, I'm going with Higgins.
1: Yeah, I'm Scott, I'm glad you brought up the personnel packaging with this team. Um, when Austin Hooper gets back, it's going to be really interesting to see how Kevin Stefanski deploys Harrison Bryant. We saw plenty of Harrison Bryant in the slot, uh, really serving as the number three receiver, despite there being two tight ends and two receivers on the field. Um, he's got the route running capability to play a, a slot flex hybrid type tight end position. Uh, he's coming off a career game playing a traditional tight end role. Um, but I could just see Harrison Bryant turning into this the, the number three sort of slot guy at times um, and then protecting guys like Donovan Peoples Jones from seeing more time.
2: All right, so so what it means for Baker? And I, I was gonna ask a Donovan People's Jones question, but I'm afraid it would turn into a two hour podcast. We're get, We have time to get into that guy because I, I still think I'm, I'm intrigued by, what his upside as a rookie might be like situationally, but we got to deal with Baker and, and what this means specifically for Baker and how he's going to read the field without OBJ out there, Ellis.
1: Yeah. So this is going to be fascinating to watch with Baker Mayfield. I am convinced teams are going to start eliminating that first read for him. Um, the Steelers did an excellent job at it. And I know I'm saying, Oh, the rest of the league is just going to start playing like the number one defense in football. It's not as simple as that, but schematically you can start getting a feel for what Baker's doing by just watching his eyes and his eyes tell you exactly where the football's going. And that is what I'm concerned about in the absence of Odell Beckham Jr. Now watch this. We're entering a possible level up scenario with Baker Mayfield now too. If you can build off this type of performance, that game winning drive. Now, I think it's important to take separate everything he did up until that game winning drive. And then the game winning drive, because everything he did up until the game winning drive, Doug, you're not going to like this, but that's the Bengals. That's just a bad Bengals defense. Baker carves them up all the time. And no one should be surprised by that. What you can put stock in is that game winning drive. I said it after the pod coaches cannot protect their quarterback with scheme. When there is no timeouts, you need to go 75 yards to win the game. That is a quarterback trusting his instincts and being competent in his throws. And Baker Mayfield could have played it safe. He could have tried to play for a field goal and not made been worried about mistakes. Instead, he went out and won the dang football game. So that is where we're now flirting with a possible Baker level up where if he does reach this point by playing more comfortable and free and in a way, uh, strategically loose, I'll put it that way, strategically loose, not having to hone in on Odo Beckham Jr., not have to be so uh, hypersensitive about where Beckham is and the idea in the back of his mind that we need to get OBJ involved. With all those sort of chains on him, I could see him distributing the ball more smoothly. And I could see him just taking the single coverage and not caring about where said receiver is. That can all be true. But where the level up has to come is in the degree of difficulty that OBJ made up for for Baker Mayfield. I mean, he broke up an interception that Baker should have thrown. He caught that ridiculous ball on the side of his belly and his arm. You know, th- there are some bailout moments that OBJ had for Baker Mayfield. And now this is all gonna land on Baker because all the talk about, oh, this is the best offense Baker will ever have, and everything around Baker is a between an A and a B plus, and now this is Baker. Now we're back to Baker having to raise his level of play because his receivers are now less. If Baker can become a progression reader because now he doesn't have to worry about where OBJ is so much and start reading the field completely, and then he continues his red zone production, this might actually work out. And the Browns are beneficiaries of a very weak schedule too. It's going to come down to Baltimore and Pittsburgh. It's it's really what we are all waiting for is that next Baltimore game. But in the meantime, you got to beat who's on your schedule. And I would not be surprised if Baker is playing more loose and confident in that pocket, not having to hone in on Ola Beckham Jr. But, Doug, it's those big moments. It's the reverse. It's the ridiculous catch. It's breaking up the interception that I wonder if that's the bar Baker's going to have to meet. It's going to come down to Baker replacing OBJ and not so much these receivers. I love
2: the term "strategically loose." I think that's exactly what we're looking for here. Because if if Kevin Stefanski doesn't want to turn it over and wants you to do things within the structure of the system, you can't. That's strategic. But you can't have Baker be strategic tight, and you can't. And Baker, if Baker wants to play unstrategically loose, Kevin Stefanski is not here for that at all. But strategically loose within structure, but yet enough of a dose of baker's kind of natural instinct on things. And that you know what that if they can come to a happy medium on he threw a pick but coach here's exactly what I was trying to do it was on this down and this situation that's why I took that shot not I didn't see a safety and I chucked it right to a guy not that I panicked here but it was almost like a strategic mistake. I don't think you're going to get baker to zero mistakes. And I don't think you want to get baker to zero mistakes, because I think zero mistake Baker is also like never makes a play Baker. But I think strategic errors within a smart framework might be the best thing to do here. And if you don't, if you're just reading what's there, I could see maybe how that happens. But Scott, that's the ultimate thing here, Scott, and the way Ellis just explained it. If Odell's not there and it just affects the way Baker looks at things, do, have you felt that at times this season, Scott, that when Baker is making decisions or making reads the fact of, I should be trying to get it to Odell here has any kind, did it have any kind of negative influence on him over the course of the first six games?
0: Well, yeah, I think that's, that's what I brought up earlier. I think that that's probably in your head. It's, it's those plays where it just seemed like they're really, the only reason they ran this is like, because we had to get the ball to Odell that they did a bubble screen. I mean, Kevin Stefanski never calls that.
1: Right. Uh, but
0: he did it against the Ravens and it was clear that they wanted to get the ball in Odell's hands. Uh, some of these long shots that the Browns have taken, it just feels like uh, they need to get the ball to Odell's in Odell's hands. We saw it a ton last year with in Freddie kitchen's offense. And it was a little better this year, but it's still there. And now you're kind of taking that off the plate. And it's like, it's like you got a, bunch of things to do for work and and you get to the point where you can you could focus on this one thing now or these two things and you don't have you don't have to multitask so much you can just kind of focus more and I think that's how I envision Baker kind of approaching this now with Odell out of the picture it's you're not having to multitask so much you everything's maybe a little more focused and in these little slots and kind of easier to, to wrap your head around
2: and it would did, Scott did you think the first throw the throw that that was picked and that Odell got hurt on. Did you think that was an example of that? Like, was that play? Hey, this is a smart call. Let's take a deep shot on the Bengals to open the game. Or is that a, Hey, let's go to Odell with the deep shot early. Right. Because that there's a difference there. What did you think that play was?
0: No, I thought it was a, that's a shot you take on the Bengals. That's that they had success going deep on them in the first game. So that made sense. What I thought was that's a guy with a cracked rib under throwing a pass deep that's that was my first reaction on that play I'm wondering you know if he really is hurt why are they trying to go long right off the bat but no I didn't think that was a forced play it seemed like that's something you do against the Bengals defense because they're not good
1: yeah I'm really glad you brought up that that throw Doug Um, I wanted to talk about it on here for a second and I'm excited to ask Stefanski and Baker both this hopefully tomorrow like what's the difference as a quarterback? between that first throw to Odell that turns out to be an underthrow, and the perfect throw he made to Donovan's people's Jones to win the game. I'm worried they're going to tell me the end zone. And I don't think that's going to be a complete truth because here's what I saw. And I need to go back and and just look at playlist um, for this. But I think the last two throws that Baker's made targeting Odell Beckham jr were both atrocious underthrows. It was that Pittsburgh one, Doug, that I texted you about on that double move. It's in my story also. And he just underthrew him. And Odell got held a little bit, but it should have been a touchdown. It's an underthrow on Joe Hayden. And then that first throw of the game versus the Bengals. And the reason I think he's underthrowing those balls is because it's Odell Beckham Jr. He got sick of overthrowing Odell. Like, you got to at least give him a chance, right? Like, give your guy a chance. It's Odell Beckham Jr., and we had seen so many overthrows and sales that Baker now is like, all uh, right, giving you a chance. And they turn into atrocious underthrows. So I think that might be an Odell Beckham Jr. effect that no one's probably ever going to admit to. But those two throws that first started the game with a pick and then won the game with a touchdown are the same play, but they were completely different balls in terms of velocity and placement. And I wonder if that's the Odell Beckham Jr. effect compared to just throwing to X receiver over here that is now going to be either Hodge, Higgins, or Peoples-Jones.
2: All right, I think we're going a little long here. I think we'll skip the quick hits at the end. So we'll wrap up this podcast with this, and then we'll invite you guys back for our Friday Gotta Watch the Tape where we'll dig in more on what's coming up next for the Browns against the Las Vegas Raiders. Ellis, give your final in-conclusion kind of middle school book report wrap-up of everything you just said of, and include these two topic sentences, why they will miss Odell Beckham and why they'll be okay without Odell Beckham, just so people can have this final thing in your head from everything you just said.
1: Well, in middle school book report fashion, in conclusion, the Browns will miss Odell Beckham Jr. because you're not getting those Highlight blockbuster moments. No player can run that reverse. Kevin's fancy had three quarterbacks to play with in that backfield. Those gadget plays, when nothing's working, those are going to be harder to come by. I'm convinced when teams see Jarvis Landry loop now, they're just going to cover everyone. It, he's clearly throwing the football. Those plays you, you can't replace. It's going to be harder to get people open schematically. Odell Beckham Jr. was the ultimate get people open and allow Baker to throw his first read. Those things you cannot replace. The Browns offense will be okay without Odell Beckham Jr., though, because the schedule's light. I think Baker Mayfield will now play strategically loose, as we've coined now on this podcast, spread the ball around and not have to worry about where Odell Beckham Jr. is. Ultimately, though, this game comes down to big moments and big games, and when you don't have that guy, it's going to come down to now Baker Mayfield on Monday Night Football or week 17 versus Steelers or in playoff games to now be that guy. He was at the end of the Bengals game because OBJ is no longer going to be that guy at the end of the Cowboys game. And my last point, the night is darkest just before the dawn shout out the dark night. I believe Odell Beckham jr. Will be back and playing great football, whether it's in Cleveland or elsewhere. This is a shade of Randy Moss Oakland Beckham has another chapter of his football career to write. And just as a fan of passionate, exciting expert football. I look forward to that. I'm going to think of it, this
2: podcast, this way from now on. I'm the teacher and you're both doing half hour book reports each week. All A's so far, and I'm not an easy grader. I am not an easy grader. All A's so far. All right. Thanks to Scott Pascoe and Ellis Williams for all that great work on the Browns pass defense and on the Browns passing offense without Odell Beckham. Of course, five days a week, you get the great orange and Brown talk I, if, you, if you care at all about the Browns, I don't know how you can't get wrapped up in the post-game pod. The Browns tech subscribers get to come jump in right away and be part of that podcast. But if you're not that, you can still absorb it afterward. It is great, informed, kind of heat of the moment discussion right after a Browns game. So we want to make sure you're not missing that podcast. Get subscribed to the Orange and Brown Talk feed five days a week there. And then every Tuesday and Friday, we dive in on Gotta Watch the Tape. So thanks to you guys for listening. On behalf of Scott and Ellis, I'm Doug. Thanks for diving in on Gotta Watch the Tape.